They come from the bowels of hell, a transformed race of walking dead, zombies guided by a master plan for complete domination of the Earth. Plan 9 from Outer Space. That was a little of the trailer for Plan 9 from Outer Space, a film that was made in 1959 and perhaps the most famous and most beloved of the bad movies. But what makes a horror film so bad it's good? So bad you can't turn it off. So bad that you savor every painful moment. Here to consider these questions with me is Miguel Rodriguez, director of the Horrible Imaginings Film Festival and host of Monster Island Resort Podcast. So Miguel, what is it about Plan 9 that makes it so bad yet so irresistible? Well, I think with Plan 9, that's a, a really great example of pure sincerity on the part of the filmmaker Ed Wood Jr., who was really persistent in getting the film made, and his love for what he was doing really shines through. And I feel like for a lot of the audience, that pure enthusiasm is infectious, and we feel it as well when we watch it despite the overt incompetence with which the film is made. And so I think it really comes down to how do we really define bad? Is bad something that is made poorly or is bad something that we don't have fun while watching? And I think with Plan 9, I don't know anyone who doesn't have fun watching the movie in a group of people in that context. If you look to the film, Ed Wood, that Mm -hmm. Tim Burton made about the filmmaker, Ed Wood, Mm -hmm. and you watch that, I think you get some of the reason why his films are so enjoyable. Because it's played by Johnny Depp. He's a filmmaker who's so passionate Mm -hmm. and so excited. And every time he describes a scene, you just can't help but fall in love with it. And in case somebody hasn't seen Plan 9... If you look at it, there are moments where it looks like cardboard sets mm-hmm. and the cemetery <laughs> looks like it's a carpet thrown over some boxes with people crawling up out of it. So it really has this do-it-yourself kind of look to yeah, it. Yeah, it's almost like a high school play in some parts of it. But it, it has resonated over the years. And as every decade passes, it resonates with greater potency. In fact, actors like Conrad Brooks from that film still have been going to conventions and signing autographs and living off of the fruits of Plan 9 ever since, even though, you know, a lot of people widely consider it one of the worst films ever made. But it's so just lovable that it's irresistible. I forgot how much that Ed Wood throws into this movie and all the different genres that it does encompass. It is a genre crossover. And the other thing to keep in mind is it's from 1959. And sci-fi and horror were really interchangeable at that time. Horror films, of course, enlivened the film industry with the universal horror films a couple decades before this. And then with the 50s, in order to keep the genre going, the whole atomic age happened. Everybody's interest was in science and the mysteries of science and, of course, the fears that went along with those mysteries. And so a lot of the science fiction films were horror films with a science fiction bent rather than a supernatural bent. And I think Ed Wood was just kind of following that, too. Let's hear a little more from it. This is from the opening of the film. Greetings, my friend. We are all interested in the future, for that is where you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives. And remember, my friend, future events such as these will affect you in the future. (laughs) 
You can't help but laugh. I mean, it's the combination of the writing and the overly sincere well, acting. That's just it. He was dead serious when he wrote those lines. Dead serious when he wrote, future events will affect you in the future. It's the sincerity. Yeah, the actor is the great Criswell, who was a television personality, like syndicated television personality at the time, and became one of the Ed Wood camp, who was in a number of his films. And he, he's one of the most lovable parts of this. He goes on even to later more sad Ed Wood films like Orgy of the Dead, where he plays like this Dracula figure watching women in ghost makeup dance around topless. That's that entire movie. But Criswell sticks around, and he's still as exuberant in that as he is in that line there about the future. A funny thing about that opening is that was kind of common practice in these sci-fi horror films in the 50s is they would start almost with a lecture. The Creature from the Black Lagoon starts with a a lecture about the silicanth and the uh, missing link between fish and mammals. And the mole people talks about a lecture about what is in the middle of the earth. And so Ed Wood brings it up here with uh, (laughs) a very strange talk about what could be in the future. (laughs) And because this film is so lovable, let's hear one more clip. So what if we do develop this solarite bomb? We'd be even a stronger nation than now. Stronger. You see? You see? You're stupid minds. Stupid. Stupid. One reason why we haven't given you the plot for Plan 9 from Outer Space is because it's pretty impossible to summarize, which is part, again, of its charm. Yeah. It started off as being called Grave Robbers from Outer Space, and the title changed to Plan 9 from Outer Space. So uh, the original title really sums up the plot pretty well. Basically, aliens make the dead rise in order to take over the world. That was a really interesting clip you just played because you'll see that same kind of idea done with, I would say, more confidence perhaps in The Day the Earth Stood Still, where aliens decide to intervene because we have gotten too much hubris as a human race and developed the atomic bomb. So that's where the aliens kind of step in in The Day the Earth Stood Still. And in Plan 9 from Outer Space, that whole little interaction was the aliens are trying to keep us from getting a new kind of bomb called the solar mite bomb and the alien's reaction is what you just heard your stupid minds stupid yeah it's very poetic a film that falls into the same category of being bad yet charming is a mexican film from 1960 <laughs> called ship of monsters with the absolutely luscious lorena velasquez mm-hmm. this is where the women are dressed in bathing suits to pilot the ships but again it has this very kind of low budget do it yourself quality but it's absolutely charming to watch well they put a lot of effort into making those costumes first of all it has the wacky monster costumes which uh which are lovable anytime you see the work someone puts into a costume. It's almost like going to a costume party or or seeing a costume contest. The, you can't turn your eyes away. It's like, wow, how'd they do that? Look at that. That's very cool. Only this is uh, it's like that in movie form. So you've got the uh, bikini-clad women. You've got the people dressed up in monster suits and... We have a singing Mexican cowboy, and let's hear what this sounds like. (laughs) This 
throws everything together, well, think, but the kitchen sink too. I think the the craziness of these movies is part of what makes them so watchable. It's a level of insanity that I don't see much anymore, and. It's not just that it's crazy and insane, but I'll just go back to the word sincere because it's done totally straight-faced. Like, there's no winking at the camera. There's no indication that anyone making the film, whether it's the actors or the crew or the director, had any idea they were making something off the wall, over the top, or insane. Everybody's playing it just like, yep, we're all here. They're monsters. We're on the beach. We're singing it, everything so natural. <laughs> and that just lends such a, a ludicrous air that it's almost dreamlike. And that's what captures me. Both of these films were from the late 50s, early 60s. Mm-hmm. Is it merely the distance in time that makes them bad and enjoyable? Is it the fact that they've become dated? Or does it go beyond just that? I think to a level it goes beyond just that, but there is definitely that. I recently wrote an article for the School Library Journal about how schlock, which is another word for these kinds of so-bad-they're-good movies, can be really useful when you look back over a survey of films over time. And I'm going to beat this word to death. They were made with such sincerity that when you look at them, you really saw kind of how people thought in those time periods. And so, for example, this might not be considered by some to be a schlock movie, but Invasion of the Body Snatchers is always a great example of 1950s McCarthyist thought and things like that. So when when you look at a survey of these movies over time, you get to see something like that. And the more kind of DIY, low-budget, independent, and with incompetency that they were made, for some reason that shines through a little more. Because it's harder to hide that when you're not as good a storyteller, if that makes sense. The time that passes from when they were made to now is a big part of it. However, if they didn't have the charm at the time, if they didn't strike a chord at the time, they probably wouldn't have survived as long as they have. For every Plan 9, there are hundreds of other movies that played one B circuit at the drive-in and never saw the light of day again. And the nitrate film went up in flames at some point, and nobody remembers them. So the ones that strike a chord, there's usually a reason there. And trying to find that reason when watching a whole lot of these kinds of movies is a very interesting activity. Well, in these two films, is there also this sense of innocence? Yeah. I think that's kind of what I mean when I talk about these overarching cultural mores that shine through when you have a storyteller like Ed Wood, try to express those with his films, there is an innocence and there is a really kind of lovable naivete to it. He has another film called Glen or Glenda, where he is essentially almost autobiographical about his proclivities of dressing up in women's clothing. And Glen or Glenda, in a lot of ways, is so ahead of its time. And poor Ed Wood couldn't understand why nobody wanted to see his film. But... When you watch it now, and it's still, you know, the acting is horrendous. The filmmaking aspects, technical aspects are really, really amateurish. But there's something there. There's this wild dream sequence. You know that it has some kind of deep meaning to Ed Wood. (laughs) And God help you if you want to try and figure out what that is. But it's really 
a very interesting watch. Let's move on to something called The Killer Shrews, which is also from 1959. This reflects a genre of kind of the killer animal film. And we've had killer spiders and killer ants, rabbits, frogs. Some, like the film Them, in which Mm -hmm. we had the killer ants, are actually genuinely effective, good sci-fi films and well-made, despite the fact that they're a little dated. But Killer Shrews is kind of a different beast. (laughs) So give people a sense of what this film looks like. It's because of films like Them that the Killer Shrews exists. The Killer Shrews is another science-gone-bad, giant regular animal film. But it was done with a far lower budget. And frankly, it's not as cleverly made. But the ways that they create the monsters are so inane that it's such a watchable film. Essentially, it does start, like I said before, with a kind of science lesson about what shrews are and what they're like. They're little rats, basically. And in this film, they grow to about the size of wolves. And in them that you just mentioned, they make these huge, lovely animatronic ants. And then there's a film called Tarantula where they do a lot of composite shots where it's an actual tarantula and they'll just put it over a cityscape and it looks like a giant tarantula using depth of field tricks. But with the killer shrews, they had less money. And so one of the ways they decided to make these monsters was they took a bunch of German shepherds and put costumes on them. And so some of the scenes are absolutely just a trip to watch because, you know, there's a scene where people are hiding behind a fence and the shrews are jumping at the fence to try and get in. But it's clearly just a bunch of dogs wearing Halloween costumes and they just look like they're having fun. They're dogs jumping up and down. Let's give people a sense of the film by playing a clip. And this clip shows a couple of things. One, it shows kind of the classic expository moment Mm. where people are trying to explain things. And also, I think you'll get a sense of the skill of the actors in this. So let's hear a little bit from The Killer Shrews. Have you ever heard of a shrew? As in taming of the animal. Bradford called them sorcerosity when he showed you one. Oh, shrew must be the common name for those cute little animals. Cute? That's the last word you can use to describe those little monsters. They're the most horrible animals on the face of the earth. As Father told you, they breed within three weeks after birth. They last yeah, yeah, around I one year. I know what your father told me, but what's that got to do with me opening that gate? There are two or three hundred giant shrews out there. Monsters weighing between 50 and 100 pounds. 50 to 100? Well, wait a minute, you must be kidding. I'm definitely not kidding. I can't. <laughs> I can't even stop laughing while listening to that. It's so good. <laughs> now, one of the amazing things about this film is that it was made in 1959, and we are only now getting a sequel. So yes. this has spawned a sequel. It has, about time, <laughs> including, I believe, some of the original actors. But, yeah, it's getting a sequel uh, that just came out this year. And what is the quality level on that? And is it as watchably bad? The sequel is a lot of fun. And it kind of goes for the same kind of camp factor, which kind of brings in this whole new wave of people trying to revisit that feeling from films of yesterday that were campy. But at the time, they weren't necessarily intentionally so. Now we're getting some that maybe it's an intentional feeling that we're trying to Reclaim. So the return of the killer shrews is mm-hmm. kind of the new, more nudge, nudge, wink, wink style of so bad they're good. Yeah, I would say, you know, anyone who's seen things from the sci fi channel like Sharknado, which got really popular, uh, Mega Python versus Gatoroid, that kind of thing. 
going back even a little before that whole revolution of sci-fi CGI monster movies, there's a filmmaker named Larry Blameyer, and he did two films, the first of which was called Lost Skeleton of Cadavra. And I think that one is the most overtly trying to relive this moment in the 50s and early 60s of uh, sci-fi horror where the acting was really wooden and the special effects were really goofy and going for that charm. But again, I think part of what makes the charm so charming is when it was not intentionally that way. Their intention was just to tell a story and that was just a byproduct of it. Well, there's a different feeling when it's intentional, I think. Yeah, I think the earlier films were much more charming and endearing. Mm -hmm. The newer ones are... There's a little, I don't know if I'd say smugness, but you, you're you laughing with them at those older movies yeah. as opposed to really kind of falling in love with the films. Not, it's a different kind of bad that's good. It is. It's one that it's typically not necessarily my cup of tea, although I will sit around and enjoy them for a while. And while I'm watching them, I do attempt to take it a little seriously. <laughs> it's just a... I don't know what it is. I think the author, Joe Lansdale, kind of said it best in his drive-in novels where he talks about these movies and he says, you know, after a while, you just develop a taste for them, kind of like learning to love sauerkraut. And, and he's totally right. I grew up on these kinds of movies and now I can't get enough of them. That scene you just saw where the they're the worst animals in the world. I just love that. It's almost like, you know, when punk rock became really popular in the late 70s and early 80s, it was because it was so visceral and because it was so raw and because it was only two chords. And it wasn't about, you know, great musicianship. It was more about rebellion and more about anyone can do this, more about the DIY aspect where anyone could pick up a, a guitar and start playing anybody could put a, a carpet on a dog and say that's a monster. It was kind of more fun to watch Ed Wood movies or Killer Shrews or some of those old ones is unlike today, it was still really difficult to make those movies. They're still shooting on film. The technical aspects were not as easy to get a hold of as they are now where we can shoot a film on a cell phone. So that is another part of the puzzle that's really interesting. The films we've been talking about None of them really have what you would say are stars. They don't have big Hollywood actors or people that you would recognize their names readily. But sometimes good actors or Hollywood celebrities find themselves in really bad movies. So this yeah. takes us to a whole other level of bad. You have people like Richard Burton in mm -hmm. the... Uh, Heretic, the sequel to The Exorcist. You have Julie Christie in Demon Seed. And you have Tony Curtis in The Manitou. Just to get a sense of how bad this is, let's play a scene. This has to do with Native American mythology and a big growth on a woman's back and a creature that comes out of it, all sorts of weird stuff. Um, <laughs> this is but, one of the most insane films. <laughs> but let's hear a little bit of Tony Curtis in this movie. Well, what about Karen? I'm sorry about Karen, but I've tried calling every spirit mountain, wind, rain. What about, what's his name, uh, uh, Gitchy, uh... Gitchy Manitou. Harry, you don't call Gitchy Manitou, he... Oh, yeah? Well, he's gonna get a personal person call from me. Color! <laughs> Tony Curtis is handling that situation. You know, it's, it's a whole other category of these movies where there are some that 
have name actors who for either they were at the tail end of their career. Like, for example, there's the film Food of the Gods. It has Ida Lupino in a role. There were some that were good, and I feel like they were trying to do more films like that. Like, for example, The Omen, which could have very easily been one of these kinds of movies, except it's really well made and well written. It has Gregory Peck in it as the protagonist. So I think there. after that, there are films where they were trying to appeal to bigger name stars. So you have this one with poor Tony Curtis in it. Another one that comes to mind is Trog, which has Joan Crawford crawling around in the dirt in her Joan Crawford outfit going, Trog! But with the Manitou, this one sticks out for me. And the reason is not just that it has Tony Curtis, which is a huge plus. Also, Burgess Meredith. It's actually Susan Strasberg. It's got this huge, amazing cast. I don't know what they did (laughs) to (laughs) get in this movie. Uh, It was written and directed by a man named William Girdler. He had a very short stint as a filmmaker in Kentucky making insane movies and the creativity of the storyline. He would take something classic and make it completely wacky. Before this one, he made a film called Abby, which is the black exploitation version of The Exorcist. The girl who gets possessed becomes a sex fiend and it's completely insane. But this one is just next level insane. You have a Native American demon growing in a lump on this woman's back, on the back of her neck, until it finally comes free. And it's this little midget monster. And, ooh, the climax is so good that I don't want to give it away on the radio. But as crazy as that sounds, the third act takes it so much crazier. And get it gets so much more insane. And it's because of that level of over-the-top madness that this movie really appeals to me. And is it also... The fact that you have kind of real actors in these absurd situations and because you know these actors from other films, Mm -hmm. other quality films, that you kind of get this level of either empathy or attachment (laughs) to them – it trying depends. to seriously go through these ridiculous scenes. Tony Curtis does take this role seriously by all visual accounts when you watch it. And you'll see other movies like this where there are name actors and they're clearly just phoning it in. That'll happen. Orson Welles did a couple of late life crappy roles and he totally just phoned it in and it wasn't that exciting. Tony Curtis brings it in this role for whatever reason. Maybe he was just having fun. And I think... When you see an actor like Tony Curtis doing his job in a movie with source material this completely outlandish, there's something that is really intriguing about that. You wonder how it got made and how they got these people it in. It doesn't – yeah, it doesn't make sense. There is such a like a, a weird dissonance that feels good. Some of the more contemporary films that are so bad they're good, we've talked about have that kind of wink-wink aspect to mm-hmm. it. But there's one film – fairly recent, Troll 2 from 1990, that doesn't really have the wink-wink aspect. And if you hear the director who Mm -hmm. is featured in the documentary Best Worst Movie about this Troll 2 film, which doesn't really have exactly trolls as you might expect them, (laughs) despite the title, and it's not a sequel. But what's interesting about this is there is that level of sincerity from him. He was really trying to make a sincere, scary kind of creepy film. Him and and his screenwriter as well. And in fact, that documentary you mentioned, Best Worst Movie, which essentially is talking about exactly what we're trying to get across here. You see two different worlds. It's like both of these 
categories we're talking about in one because you have the actors from the film who are going around to all these screenings and kind of making fun of it with the audience and having a great time. But then you get these interviews with Claudio Forgasso, the director, and his screenwriter on the film, and they took it totally seriously. There's one scene that I actually find rather heartbreaking during a Q&A where Claudio, the director, he gets up in the middle of the Q&A and starts defending the film in public in the middle of all the actors and all the audience members, essentially just having a lot of fun at the film's expense. Claudio Fragasso is like the Ed Wood of <laughs> Italian, early 90s Italian cinema. Now, this film involves a family that comes to this town called Nilbog, which is goblin spelled backwards. Oh, you uh, just, big reveal. I know, big reveal. Spoiler <laughs> alert. Let's play a, a clip and let's see how seriously you, the listener, can take it. I never liked that kid. I never did. I'm the one who has to like him, Dad. Me alone. Stop it, please. Joshua, start singing. Come on, sing that song I like so much. I don't feel like singing, Mom. Just sing. Row, row, row your boat gently down a stream. Merry, 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 life is better. You can sense the quality of acting in this, and you can sense the level of annoyance in just this little song that they're playing. Yet, again, this is a film where if it pops on TV and you turn on the channel, it's hard to turn it off because it is rivetingly bad. Yeah. That scene in particular, the family in the trip in the car who are annoyed with each other, and so they start singing the Row Your Boat song. It's it's just a very oddly executed scene, right from concept to completion. And there's something about that that is riveting. I can't believe I'm even watching this. I don't think we can do a show on horror films so bad they're good without at least mentioning Troma. Troma created the Toxic Avenger. That's probably his, their best-known character. Mm-hmm. But Troma has, for decades, made a business, a career, a livelihood out of making films that are sometimes deliberately bad, sometimes with a little bit of intention of being mm-hmm. good, an odd mix. But again, they're very entertaining to watch despite incredibly low budgets and some bad acting, bad mm-hmm. filmmaking. What's the appeal? You know, Troma goes back to 1982 or 83. So this goes way back. And it is almost like that wink, wink, nudge, nudge thing. But it is the genesis of it in a way. Uh, Lloyd Kaufman and uh, Michael Hurd started the company. It, it really is the punk rock of cinema because it's filthy, it's dirty. You can't tell who in the world they made these films for. For example, Toxic Avenger is this superhero movie which looks like it should be made for kids. And they even made a kid's cartoon of it in the 90s. But the film features, you know, nudity and bad language and lots and lots of gore. And it's completely just a mess of depravity. But I think that is obviously what has given it a cult status. I, don't, I mean, I don't think it was hugely successful when it first came out. But it's grown in popularity to such an extent that most people recognize the Toxic Avenger walking down the road or... You know, he'll make an appearance at Comic-Con and everybody knows who he is, that kind of thing. So we've been talking about horror films that are so Mm -hmm. bad they're good. Do you have any kind of summing up that you'd like to leave people with to uh, some insight into this? Or Definitely. I mean, I think it 
comes back to what I think I was trying to say at the beginning is, is what is the definition of bad? And it really comes down to that. For me, when I'm watching a film, I'm looking for something to happen, something, something that I want to talk about afterwards. And a lot of the films we've been talking about, and a lot of the films that are on the worst ever lists, like Plan 9 and Killer Shrews, I don't think deserve to be on the worst films ever list because they are enjoyable. You watch them and they have charm and there's something to be said for an absolute failing in such a miraculous and incredible way. And I think the films that deserve to be on worst ever lists are the films that were just kind of churned out that nobody ever cared about to begin with or you know something that was just kind of put out there and there's no real regard for it on the part of the filmmakers or the part of the people who watch it really. Whereas some of the some of the ones we're talking about, there was a genuine, sincere love for the genre or a love for monster movies or a love for something. There's a real feeling behind them. And I think that makes them worth something and maybe not as deserving of the term bad. I think one thing that points me in the right direction of defining these is a British show called The Incredibly Strange Film Show <laughs> with Jonathan Ross. Yeah. And he focused on a lot of these filmmakers who made films that you would probably consider so bad they're good. But every episode of his show left me with this feeling like, I want to go out and make a movie. Because yeah. the filmmakers, no matter how bad their movies were, they were so in love with the process of making films mm -hmm. and in the process of getting something out there no matter what it took and no matter how bad it was, that you couldn't leave the theater or stop watching one of those episodes and think, I don't want to go out and do this too. Yeah. And I think it's that passion. And for me, the films that are the worst are bland, mediocre yeah, movies. exactly. Where you come out and there's nothing to talk about and you don't feel strongly one way or the other, but they just have this hollowness to you them. You know, as a teacher, kids either, if you line them up, there are the ones who want to stand in the front of the line or they're the ones who want to stand in the back of the line. But nobody wants to be in the middle because the middle is bland. So I feel like there are films like uh, Citizen Kane, which I love and are mar marvelous. And they're the highbrow films and they're the front of the line. And then there are films like Deathbed, The Bed That Eats, that I find marvelous in a completely polar opposite side of the spectrum kind of way and it's on the back of the line but I would go with either one of those films before I go with something kind of mediocre that sits in the middle. Well your mention of Deathbed I think brings up the issue of something so bad it's jaw-droppingly bad that you just <laughs> it's like a car wreck where you yeah. can't turn away and there's that level of fascination with some films that are bad. Yeah yeah that one there must have been some level of insanity that went into making Deathbed the bed that eats and uh, I really think it comes from the fact that, that the filmmaker who made that was trying to make an art film, or at least it really feels like it. So it's really slow. But as tedious and as much of a slog as it can be to try to watch it, there are parts of it that are so hypnotic. And it's called Deathbed, The Bed That Eats. You can't beat that title. And that's fully descriptive of the film. It, does, it is. <laughs> We've been talking about horror films that are so bad they're good, and I want to thank Miguel Rodriguez, director of Horrible Imaginings Film Festival and host of Monster Island Resort Podcast, for joining me for this conversation. Thank you. It's been a lot of fun.
And to go out, we're going to go out with a song from a film called The Worm Eaters. And this Ted B. Will, Michaels. Hopefully this song will give you a sense of how bad this film is and maybe it'll get lodged in your brain just a little bit. So here we go with The Worm Eaters. Nobody likes me, Everybody hates me, yes, I'll go eat one. Real men, grumpy worms, only stuff, grumpy worms, yes, I'll go eat one.